Hey there, and welcome out to the backwoods. This is Jeff Wright. I'm here with Ben, and we have a very special guest on with us today. It is Dr. Jared Moore, and we are here to talk about his very soon to be released, long time in the making. Been been looking forward to this one for a while. His book, Lust of the Flesh, on concupiscence and uh, same-sex attraction, all kinds of good stuff about human sexuality and how to honor the Lord um, in those arenas. Before we get started there, Ben, how you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Pretty excited to have this conversation. Dr. Moore, how about you, bud? I'm doing well, man. Doing great. What's the actual release day for your book? Do you have that yet? Don't have an exact day yet, but um, it's supposed to be early October. So probably any time between the 1st through the 15th, something like that. 1st through the 15th. Okay, and uh, this is... Again, the title is Lust of the Flesh. This is uh, material that you did in your doctoral dissertation. Is that correct? Right. It's uh, it's kind of a summary, lay version of my dissertation. And I've added, I've added probably, um, I've added at least a chapter, and then I've updated a lot of the rebuttals. Okay. And it is available through which publisher? Free Grace Press. Is that what you did um, your previous book on the pop culture parent through? No, that, that was New Growth. Okay. So do we know if there's a pre-order set up for this already? Not yet, but there, I believe there will be. Okay. So we will uh, try to update you all through Twitter and other social media when this is ready to go. Uh, listeners, you're going to want to get a copy of this because I really think this book is unique uh, in our evangelical moment. Uh, yeah. Before we get... Yeah. Uh, before we get going on that, though, Jared, uh, Jared, we've been a, we've been friends for a long time, and I know that you started out sort of in systematics and uh, eventually pivoted to this topic as uh, as you did your academic work. How did a reformed understanding of concupiscence come to be what you wanted to do your your dissertation on? And can you walk our listeners who may not be familiar with that term through? Uh, what concupiscence means and how it's relevant to our moment. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I originally started out in my dissertation writing my prospectus, which is what you have to you have to kind of write a proposal um, to try to convince three professors to get on board with your your dissertation. And I was wanting to write on common grace, and I wanted to tie it directly to the atonement. Uh, through the Noahic Covenant. And so I was wrestling with the Noahic Covenant, and long story short, I, my pers- prospectus was approved two or three times by my advisor, but my two um, two assistant advisors on that that would assist him both rejected it, and they kept rejecting it. So I went through this for like a year, like a year and three months. And um, finally, my advisor just said, you know, you're going to have to pick another topic. And I was actually wanting to write this book, um, my what I ended up writing my dissertation on. I wanted to write it after I finished my other dissertation, and so I had already made an outline. So, like my, you know, a, a day later, I sent, <laughs> I sent the outline to my advisor, and um, he said, "This looks good. I'm just, I'm just concerned that you did it so fast." So, <laughs> so. Uh, so I, you know, you and I have a mutual friend who was flirting with Wesley Hill back when Wesley Hill, not literally, that's probably the wrong. <laughs> I was about to say, you, 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 you need to clear that up on this episode. 
<laughs> he wasn't literally flirting with Wesley Hill. He was flirting with Wesley Hill's uh, doctrine, you know, Washington waiting, um, arguing that there is some sort of good in same-sex attraction that is non-sexual. And so he was kind of flirting with those ideas. And so, you know, from the very beginning, I was like, there's no way that that's biblical. There's no way that that's right. Um, and so I went and listened to Wesley Hill. He was, he was lectures at Calvin Seminary. And uh, that, that kind of started my rebuttal. And I wrote a few articles against Wesley about sanctifying um, same-sex attraction. And he actually got on my uh, blog, which is defunct now. Um, but he got on my blog and replied to me and um, interacted with me a little bit at the beginning. But he's never interacted with me since. Um, it's just preposterous. And, and almost all these dudes have went further left since, the, since when they first started. Yeah, so I think I've been pretty clear about this in multiple places. I try to give you credit everywhere I can, but it wasn't just our mutual friend who was thinking through that. I'd found Wesley Hill pretty interesting in terms of his ideas. I was a fairly young pastor at that point, um, had run into some guys in the church who said, hey, I I experienced same-sex attraction. I was casting about for how to help them. Another guy named Ed Shaw, who uh, I can't remember the name of the uh, American version of his book, but he had written The Plausibility Problem over in Britain. He was part of this group called Living Out. And I remember having really heated conversations with you about this, real arguments. I mean, we, like I said, we've been friends forever. We've had our fair share of pretty heated arguments, but I'm very thankful that, like our mutual friend, you were chipping away at this and you really swung me uh, on, you know, my idea that maybe same-sex attraction has some sort of uh, redemptive possibilities. So, um, so con- was it concupiscence? Well, before you go, was it exegesis that that impacts yeah. you on this? So, so I think a good thing before we dive into that is, can you, Jared, could you define concupiscence for everybody, just so we understand what we're talking about for the listeners who may not be familiar with it already? Concupiscence is basically anything in you that's against God. It's a inner evil desire. Synonymous with the fallen nature? Yeah, it's, a, it's what's left over. It's original sin in unbelievers, and in Christians, it's what's left over of original sin in your heart. What, could you give some examples of this besides the one we're going to be talking about, just to help people get a better understanding? Yeah, so um, an inclination to hate your brother um, is an example, an inclination of greed, an inclination of idolatry. Um, you know, Augustine says you commit a million a day, a million sins, sins of inclination, um, where anything in you that is evil, that and evil is defined by it's contrary to God, it's against God, it's against His law, His word. Um, anything that doesn't love God or your neighbor that springs up in your heart is concupiscence. It's a motion of original sin. And so, and this would be distinguished from, say, the actual hatred in your heart, or would they be kind of synonymous? And then whatever outward acts you do as a result of that hatred are sins, and the 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 internal hatred in your heart is the concupiscence, or is there an inclination toward hatred that's a separate thing from the actual hating in your heart? 
Um, the, the lust of the flesh is just the beginning of sin in your heart. And the question is, is it, are you going to give your members to it to, to commit more heinous sin? Um, it's, it's, kinda, it's an error to, to think that the will is not involved in the inclination. Um, you know, how, are you, how would someone be able to have an inclination if the will is not involved? Now, you could say the mind is not involved. Um, but, uh, but I mean, it, it's part of our flesh. Fleshly desire is another way to say it. Just what's left over of, uh, of the evil before we were Christians um, that's still in our hearts, though it no longer rules us. Um, it is still there and still tempts us from within, uh, trying to get us to walk in the flesh. I don't know if that that's probably a long answer for your uh, for your question, but there are there are actual sins where you are deliberately with your mind choosing to agree with the flesh. Um, but, but I, that's I not necessarily the same thing as that's concupiscence. Not, it's not concupiscence. That's right. Okay, that that that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's acting on the concupiscence. It's the it's the walking in the flesh is different from the flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, like those are two distinct things. You know, Paul commands us not to walk in the flesh. He doesn't command us not to have the flesh um, because we have the flesh um, in this life. That's it's part of us. Um, when you when you're saved, when you're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, transformed, the Holy Spirit um, frees you from you know. So your will is bound by the flesh when you're an unbeliever. You're nothing but flesh, nothing but concupiscence. And when you get saved, the Holy Spirit frees you from having to submit to your flesh. Now you are able, you know, before you're saved, your flesh is Lord. After you're saved, Christ is Lord. And, um, you know, you, you are able, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to submit yourself to the desires that the Spirit is producing in you. So you have both the Holy Spirit and the flesh are producing desires. And you can choose which one to submit to as a Christian. That's why, and that's why there's so much in the Bible about walking in the Spirit. Um, I mean, actually, most of the most of the New Testament is written to believers to encourage them to live out who they are in Christ. Yeah. Okay. So, Jared, two follow-ups on this. Um, you have a phrase that you use often, and I know it shows up in your book. Fleshly desire is morally culpable sin. So I'd like to to kind of talk to you about that for just a second. I'd also like to ask when we're done, when, when you're thinking about early Wesley Hill and those guys, uh, I know you are already being informed by the Reformed tradition, and that certainly shows up in your dissertation. But I'm, I'm curious if it was pure exegesis that helped you see through uh, what you were hearing from Wesley, or if you were already at that point kind of drawn on the Reformed tradition, and if so, what helped you? So just to set that up, the first one there with fleshly desire being morally culpable sin. Uh, back to our own conversations, I remember telling you that these guys who are saying, I don't know where my appetite for uh, people of my same sex came from. I just sort of experience it. And I don't think that's sin because it's not something that I'm deliberately choosing to experience. That really I don't know, carried a lot of heft with me because I thought, well, if they can't account where it's coming from, it can't be something that they're morally culpable for. 
uh, and you would come back to that fleshly desires, morally culpable sin. So if uh, if there are listeners out there who are thinking through, like, look, man, these guys aren't, they didn't sit down one day and say, I want to be gay. I want to lust after dudes. Um, how does your work address that? And could you walk them through understanding how scripture, uh, uh, how scripture would counsel them? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question, man. So it's really the difference between anthropology and the theology, the study of man versus the study of God. Because uh, if I'm going to change or define the definition of sin based on what man thinks he feels in his heart, because um, that's what we're talking about, you know, these people who, who argue that, well, they say they've never um, never chosen this, that it just happened to them. Um, so we need to believe them. And, and I'm saying, no, we need to believe the Word of God instead of basing our definition on a guy's memory. Um, we have to base it on what God has said. Jesus said that we're to love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And that that's really what it was for me that got me to this point, was I, I was thinking through, there's no way that homosexual desire in any form or fashion is loving God or my neighbor. And um, there's no way that it's obedient to God. How can it be if it is not a love for God and my neighbor? It does. Who who cares how I feel or where it came from? It's in me. I'm doing this. I desire this. If I, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an issue if I didn't desire it. Like that. That's something else. Is that everybody wants to take it and say, "Well, I don't desire this." Well, well, who who does? Like, who's desiring it? You're the one having the. You know, you're the one that's desiring this in your heart. You say you don't desire it, but you do. Like you, you, you do. I mean, it, that's the issue. It's like fo- they want to take. I think it's it's a false gospel, man. Like, uh, but they're trying to use rhetoric to get out of their sin whenever they have a savior. If they'll just trust in him. Yeah. Do you guys remember um, years ago at one of the PCA General Assemblies, a guy got up to present a minority report about Revoice? Um, and oh, I can't think of the pastor's name now, but. He went over what you were what you were just saying that, you know, there is actual freedom for you if you mm-hmm. recognize that the guilt and shame are right and good because they lead you to a savior, savior who can actually give you freedom. Mm-hmm. Oh, God bless that brother. No, I don't know that, but I'm thankful um, for him, whoever I, he is. I, I can't recall his name now, but man, it was just excellent. And he he got castigated for it. Mm. Was that Pruitt? No. Um Oh, I can't remember his name. I'll, I'll I'll have to try to think of it. How was that a minority report at the PCA? Because this is evangelicalism special <laughs> sin. Yeah, and that's that's something we need to get into. I I would love to hear uh, Jared, you kind of talk through your argument for from scripture for this, and then we can discuss some of the kind of contemporary issues around it. And then uh, Jeff, you had another question for him that he hadn't answered yet, right? I don't want to get yeah, too he, far ahead of ourselves. He, um, Jared, you touched on how it was actually just thinking through Scripture that kind of showed you the light on this. I do want to circle back, though, to um, chapter 7 and chapter 8 in your book where you, you just pull out all this material from the Reformed tradition in contest mm-hmm. with the Roman Catholic Church, because I think that's really relevant. But for the time being, let's just, let's just go down, let's go down Jer- uh, excuse me, Ben's path there. How did how did this become the special sin in evangelicalism? I think evangelicals 
you know, the more that, and this is something that Robert Gagnon gets right in his book on homosexuality, um, he argues statistically that the more that homosexuality is praised in a particular society or city, um, there are more homosexuals in that city or more people who claim, you know, those desires. And um, so where homosexuality is celebrated, it increases, like it spreads. You know, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And, um, you know, so that that's something that, uh, that's something that, that is interesting, I thought. So like a um, social virus idea. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, it it spreads, and we're seeing it, right? The I mean, you talk to any uh, public school teacher, and they'll tell you they've got just a huge number mm-hmm. of kids that I mean, like it, it's a it's a pandemic, you know, it's it's all over us um, already because of the compromise on this issue. So so basically, evangelicals were looking for a way. Um, they were looking for a way to they they don't they basically don't believe and this is all anthropology it's not based on the bible they don't believe that someone who has homosexual desire can ever become a heterosexual or ever become someone who desires the opposite sex and they they don't believe this based on um it's just mere personal experience either them or a loved one and it's all based on that personal testimony of someone else. They say they can't change or they can't not desire these things. And um, and so we're all just supposed to say, well, we need to change 2,000 years or 6,000 years of history, church history, and biblical interpretation because these guys say they can't change. I mean, I'm sorry for being so... Uh, oh, no, I'm not sorry. This is uh this is ridiculous. It is ridiculous that so many pastors and theologians have turned have turned to praising man and have formed their theology from below rather than above rather mm-hmm. than from the word of God. They have it's basically sociology, you know. Let's let's poll a bunch of people and then form our theology based on what they say. And yeah. and that, that's what's happened. It, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. And and you see too right now with the the whole transgender stuff happening. There's this like visceral hatred toward anybody detransitioning. And there's the same mm-hmm. thing in the homosexual world where anybody who says you know actually I'm free from that now is just hated by that. I don't has I don't want to call them a community, but you know what I'm talking about. Those people hate anyone who kind of turncoats from from them yes they they uh conveniently like there were some uh there were some uh quote-unquote ex-homosexuals that tried to go to revoice and um revoice uh, canceled their tickets and i i mean they intentionally leave out uh people who don't fit their narrative or fit their fit their heresy and and it is it is heresy and i'll I'm happy to explain that later, how it is heresy. At least from a church history perspective, it is heresy to believe that same-sex attraction is not sin. Yeah, that that actually leads us into a, a good 
because that's where I was going to go next. Um, Jeff mentioned this distinction between kind of the Reformed tradition and the Roman Catholics on the question of concupiscence. And I would say more so it's like the universal actually Catholic Church position and the modern Roman Catholic Church is the real difference here. But could you dive into what, what the distinction is on concupiscence between those two traditions? Yeah, so back back uh, back during the Reformation and the Council of Trent. So the Council of Trent, Romans, uh, Roman Catholics gathered in 1545 to basically go after Martin Luther and the Reformation, and uh, you know it, it really drove a divide between them, um, between the Protestants and the uh, Roman Catholics, because they basically said all Protestants were heretics, and um, essentially kicking them all out of the church. And it was a formal declaration by the Roman Catholic Church. But but they have a canon as part of that. It took, I think, 17 years for that to complete. But they uh, they had a canon called on the original sin in that. And they argued that original sin is morally culpable sin and that concupiscence is morally culpable sin, which is also what the Protestants argued. The difference was is that Rome said that baptism took away the guilt of concupiscence, and and what um, so it actually changed original sin. It changed sin. Now the Protestants argued that it sin does not change in a Christian. Um, rather, sin is imputed to Christ, but sin is still morally culpable from root to fruit, even in the Christian. And that was the difference. So it wasn't until the modern Roman Catholic Church where they took a semi-Pelagian view of sin, where, you know, all sin is not morally culpable unless your will agrees with it. Well, does that I answer sk- your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. I've been skimming through chapter 7 and chapter 8 here, and it is amazing the the breadth of reform sources that you bring to the table on this topic. And I'm reminded that in a certain set of, uh, man, I don't know if it's fair to call them pro-homosexuality, but at least soft on homosexuality, reformed evangelicals, thinking about uh, mere orthodoxy, probably even Matthew Barrett, um, you know, retrieving Protestant and and reformed uh, sources is incredibly important. But these guys don't touch it because it's not culturally fashionable. And so you've got this retrieval project that is self-consciously not retrieving anything that's not going to be winsome to the same-sex attracted set. And yet here in your book, it's just overwhelming how clear the reformers and their inheritors, like up to Charles Hodge and um, you know more modern theologians, it's amazing how consistent they really were on this. Was that a surprise to you as you dug in, or, or um, you know, is that just what you expected to find? It's it's what I expected, but I I was shocked not to find a single confession that argued otherwise. Mm. I mean, I I read over a hundred confessions in the fifteen hundreds and sixteen hundreds of reformed confessions, uh, Protestant confessions and none of them man every one of them virtually almost to the letter defines sin and motions of original sin and concupiscence the same i mean it's uh it's crazy like there's nothing like the retrieval guys you know they they are ignoring or perhaps they haven't gotten to it yet because they're so they're so focused on the the trinity that they 
that they aren't I, I've even messaged Barrett, encouraged him with Credo magazine to do do you know they have themes for each magazine that comes out. Um, I told him to do one on sin, uh, you know, retrieve the mm-hmm. classical doctrine of sin, and he hasn't done it yet. He just gave me a thumbs up. Well, this has been a year or two ago, because um, yeah, I wish they I, would. I think what you'll find is that the Trinity is a real safe doctrine to retrieve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no secular um, mob is going to come down on you for defining the doctrine of the Trinity according to classical theology. But if you tell them that they can't sodomize each other, then it becomes a different story. Well said, Ben. Well said. Yeah, and I mean to be fair, part of the reason they, I think that that they're so staunch. I mean, who were the, who were the, who were the, the Baptists that were embarrassing our SBC and Baptist institutions concerning um, masculinity and femininity back four four years ago. It was Owen Strand, Wayne Grudem, mm-hmm. Bruce Ware. Yeah. And by, by embarrassing, I mean they they were not soft complementarians. And they, they, they tried to use the doctrine of the Trinity, the eternal subordination of the Son, functional, not actual, but functional subordination of the Son to show that um, submission is not inherently um, less than, right? The to meaning, show that meaning yeah. that women are not less than men just because they must submit to their husbands, um, according to the Bible. And... I, it makes me wonder that if part of the reason that these guys have went so staunch against these guys is not the doctrine of the Trinity at all. Um, yeah, more- no, I, I think you're I think you're right about that, that largely the doctrine of the Trinity was kind of weaponized against these guys who were fighting against egalitarianism. And, and like so, for instance, I largely agree with the classical theist guys about the eternal subordination stuff. I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of that. I don't like it. But it was very clear to me when that debate was happening, and it's why I stayed out of it mostly. It was very clear to me that it wasn't about the Trinity. It was about these guys were talking about men and women. Right. Like Grudem, man, Grudem is one of has been one of the best on um masculine and feminine roles. I mean, he has he's been a stalwart. Um and he I mean he's debated egalitarians publicly and he, he's very kind. Um, but he lays them out with scripture. I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible watching him, um, debate, listening to him to, to debate, like foaming at the mouth, egalitarians. And he's just very sweet and kind and wears them out with scripture. I have taken some heat in our circles. I think think Wayne Gruden might think that I'm an extremist when it comes to gender roles and nature, but that's another conversation for a different time. (laughs) Gotcha. Where I was going uh, with that previously, talking about extremism, I've taken some heat among some pretty based brothers on Twitter because, you know, when when the classical theism thing comes up with Strand uh, and and where I'm just demanding, hey, this is a proxy war for egalitarianism and it's a proxy war after Owen's book on wokeness came out. Mm -hmm. This isn't... This isn't about defending the doctrine of the Trinity. It's about othering these guys because they don't have a fashionable view of yeah. uh, of men and women. 
And that's something I would encourage our listeners to recognize. When when the Barretts of the world wade into this, as Ben mentioned, they're heroes in battles that were won 500 years before they were born. They're, they're real stalwarts. But what they're doing in contemporary battles is attacking the people who are taking the side of Scripture over and against the spirit of the age. And you should remember that the next time you get an opportunity to jump in on a flame war. Right, man. And it, I mean, it's and what's what's crazy is that it's built on a logical fallacy. Like it's, you know, just because I mean, if you believe that Grudem and Strand are wrong on the Trinity, that doesn't mean they're wrong on, um, you know, gender roles. <laughs> Right. Yeah, but exactly. if you can other them, if you can other mm-hmm. them all the way over to heterodoxy or maybe even heresy on the Trinity, you have dismissed everything else they've said, and that's right. the rhetorical play. Yeah, it's essentially it's essentially the same argument as saying, "Oh, Stephen Wolf is a racist." Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, I mean, I'm to the point. We just need to. And look, look, I so. I don't agree with the eternal functional subordination of the sun either, but I, right. I see it as an error, not heresy. Right. Um, and so I agree to disagree with my brothers on that, but uh, because I know that they're ontologically, they're saying um, what Chalcedon says, like, or mm-hmm. what Nicaea says. Like, they're, they're not disagreeing on the ontology um, of who God is. Um, but, but anyways, that's why functional is, th- is put in there, but... But but the guy the critique says well functional implies ontology well no mm-hmm. it does I, I don't think mm-hmm. it does because you have so think of think of how classical theism defines a trinity it, it, the way that it's presented is that it's the logical order of subsistence that distinguishes the three persons from one another where the the father begets the son is begotten the spirit spirates from the father and the son. And using that language, you're speaking. I mean, what does that imply? What do what do even the names among the Trinity imply? What does Father and Son imply? The names, right? I, I mean, sure. And, sure. And to it's say, obvious. yeah. And if you say that, um, if you say, well, uh, function, you know, that implies ontology. Well, does names does that imply ontology? Um, anyway, I, I just think it's. You're, you know, I, I think it's more of a, it's an error, not a, not a heresy or something to disfellowship people over. But I, but I'll tell you this, I believe in disfellowshipping semi-Pelagians. Um, mm. And uh, that, that's something that bothers me. So you got Matthew Barrett just last week. Look, I, I like Barrett. I think he's, I do think he's a brilliant theologian. Um, but I, I think he, I think he is so wrong on his associations. Like they like he's not going to associate. I do not like Barrett, and I think he's stupid. <laughs> but he, he can't be as stupid as he is, and a brilliant theologian. But I but defer to you, Doctor Moore. He, he's not going to associate with Owen Strand, but he'll go on Matthew Lee Anderson's podcast, who is right. a semi-Pelagian at best. Like I think his associations are wrong. That is not orthodox. Matthew Ma, uh, Matthew Lee Anderson is not orthodox on sin, on the doctrine right. of sin. I think that's a bigger issue. Than an error on the doctrine of the Trinity versus um, heresy, like one is heresy, one is not. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think the associations are wrong. But you know how it is; everybody loves to flirt with those to the left, nobody to right. the right. 
Right. And I think that's the the real the the real root of the issue here is that it's real easy to cut yourself off from the the heretics who or, you know, quote unquote heretics who deny a doctrine that no one who is going to give you prestige or platform or money is going to have a problem with. But as soon as you start getting into those topics where the people who can grant you prestige and a platform and money uh, are going to get offended or upset by them, you get real, you get real skittish around those doctrines. You can't actually condemn anyone. You can hang out with those guys in public. I, I mean, for example, um, recently, and this, this has nothing to do with the actual topic of this podcast, but, um, Moscow inviting Rod Dreger to come speak. Yeah. Like this man abandoned his wife and kids, um, writes about some real weird stuff. Uh, and real he's weird. like, yeah, real, weird. Relevant, real relevant to <laughs> our actual conversation. That's true. That's true. Um, and he, you know, he's invited to, to come and talk about whatever topic he wants to. But then you have a guy like Thomas Accord who, you know, committed the unforgivable sin and he has disappeared. Mm-hmm. Like, he, why doesn't he get an invite to come talk about the, the whatever topic he wants to talk about? Both of these guys, you know, assuming you believe all of the stories about both of these men, they both committed some sins. Why is this one guy invited? And this other guy is, you know, made to disappear and probably never able to work again in his life without some trouble. Certainly not with any kind of, you know, relying on his experience with Christian institutions. He could, right. he could run a, a cash register at a grocery store, maybe, right. if nobody finds out and the flag falls in yeah, And it has, never it has, be invited to lecture. Yeah, it has everything to do with the society acceptable sin being um, okay to commit and you can you can forgive that sin because the world's not going to take away anything from you for committing it. And that's I think gets us right back to the topic we're talking about with homosexuality. Well, it's, it, it's okay it, it's okay to affirm these kinds of sins or to be soft on mm-hmm, them mm-hmm. or to hang out with people who are. It's the special sin. One of the things, Jared, that I think um really kind of flipped my gears uh rhetorically is when you kept pushing me to consider how the rhetoric around same-sex attraction doesn't work if you substitute in any other sin. So Accord is a ready example of that. If you told someone who uh, was a, not that this is Thomas, but let's just create something that's, you know, a character of that. So someone who said, I am a committed ethnic partiality uh, partiality, uh, person, and I just believe white people are inherently superior to all other ethnicities. And I believe that that is a corruption of my desire for uh, intimacy with my family. And therefore, I can sublimate it to a good end, but I can never change that I feel ethnically superior to other ethnicities. Nobody is going to give that three minutes of attention, let alone put it on the Gospel Coalition for special attention, right? Mm-hmm. No one's going to yeah. say we need to sit and listen to this person. Right. I'm yeah, a kleptomaniac like, and I can't, I'll never not be a kleptomaniac because it's just a, it, it's a corruption of my desire to enjoy the goodness of God's creational gifts to image bearers. And I'm going to figure out how to use it in redemptive fashion. N- nobody would give that the time of day. 
it's self-evidently ridiculous, but for some reason, wanting to sodomize someone gets special treatment. Yeah, have y'all ever heard of Greg Johnson's testimony that he gave at his church? Uh, do I need to get a, I've a re- I read so the article he, re- he wrote for, I, I can't remember what um, publication it was, but he, he wrote an article about like how he came out in his uh in his youth and stuff is is this the same story or is this a different one yeah he go he like glamorizes his like he talks about how he was at a wedding as a as a tween and looked at one of the groomsmen and couldn't take his eyes off the groomsmen and everybody was looking at him and I'm, i'm just like dude why are you telling like you should be ashamed of all this like what are you're he's like Trying to pull people's heartstrings to feel bad. Oh, this poor, this poor little boy with this. Like, it's like he's got a leprosy or something, you know, like that he can't. I mean, I, glamorizing it. And it just. Nobody. I've never seen anybody get up and talk about anything, any other sin the way that Greg Johnson talks about his sin. Like, yeah. Well, he would he would legitimately get a much harsher reaction if he had said that about a bridesmaid. Yeah. 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 Which is insane. Well, in that move right there, I mean, uh, listener Jared and I do a podcast. We we hadn't done it in a while because I haven't watched movies in a while, but we do a pop uh, uh, podcast called Pop Culture Court and Deo. And my kids are rewatching Stranger Things, and this is the fourth season oh. of Stranger Things the entire time. Will is reduced to this weepy, pathetic creature who's constantly having solo weep sessions because he can't sodomize Mike, who has been his childhood friend. We're supposed to feel so sad that that he doesn't get to sodomize and be sodomized, and it's the same thing Greg Johnson's, uh, you know, playing on. Yeah, which um, which hero of the faith was it who wrote that we need to keep our gag reflex? Huh, that would be Tabidi on Wale. <laughs> that's a great I, article. It yeah, is a it great article, and and that's what I keep I keep thinking. I've thought about it a couple of times as we've been talking. Because Jared, you said you know you heard these arguments and you were just like, well, that can't be right. That's like it's so wrong. You didn't even and people might take what I'm about to say the wrong way, but you didn't even need to build a theo- or exegetical argument for it. You were just like, that can't be right. That's wrong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think we need to hang on to that feeling. Like there are certain things you can see it and just be like, that is wrong. Like everything in my nature tells me that is wrong. And it's okay. It, that's an that's an appropriate response to sin. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like yeah, just today a guy replied to a tweet of mine and was saying, you know, I can see how same sex desire might not be sin. And and I just replied to him, like, look. Everything about so-called homosexual orientation is sin. I mean, it, it's not according to God's design. That's why yeah. it's sin. I don't care how you feel. I don't care how it happened to you. Like, it doesn't matter. Jesus, you know, Peter goes out of his way to say, and this is something Gagnon argues. Gagnon argues, well, what, what about a kid who's molested and they have same-sex desires and he says i'm not going to tell that kid that they're sinning by having those desires and here's the thing like i i definitely would tell anyone who has desires that are contrary to god's design that they are sin peter goes out of his way to tell 
his hearers that Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He's implying, or maybe directly saying, that if he did revile in return, that it would have been sin for him to do so. And we're responsible for our desires even when they, you know, even when someone else is harming us. If our desire is contrary to God, if it's not loving God and loving our neighbor and it's not framed within God's law, it's still sin. And what Gagnon doesn't understand is that logically, if the desire is not sin because of what happened to the boy, then his actions are not sin because of what happened to him. So his homosexual, not only his homosexual desires for the rest of his life, but his homosexual actions for the rest of his life can't be sin either. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point, too, because like there are people who have legitimately been sinned against, and it causes, uh, as as a result, some you know messed up uh, consequences in their own lives. But the answer to that is not to just live in you know bitterness or hatred towards like your parents or something like that. Like there, the only way to be free is to not only be willing to forgive, but also to fight against the sin that is in you as a result of being sinned against. Right. Yeah, so on this very point, I I know a guy who grew up in a major U.S. city. He was uh, one of the few white kids at his elementary school. And he said, you know, my entire childhood, basically, I'd leave my my house from where I stepped onto the sidewalk uh, all the way to school. I was tormented by my black, uh, you know, peers. And he'll tell you straight up, he's like, I have a hard time not hating all black people because of that. Can you imagine a pastoral counsel to, to say, brother, you'll never be able to change that. You've been sinned against. Therefore, we can't hold you culpable for yeah. these feelings that are inside of you. Can you imagine? Yeah, that would never happen because it's not the you know, the sin of the day that is praised mm-hmm. and blessed. And um, I'm just I'm just tired of uh, I'm tired of people talking about their feelings, talking about themselves. Um, we have to quit talking about ourselves. You cannot you can never grow more into the likeness of Christ by talking about yourself. Um, you have to talk about Jesus. <laughs> to talk about God, his word. I mean, you have to quit talking about yourself. You quit you you left yourself behind whenever you became a Christian. Like if you wanted to live for yourself, don't come to Christ. If you want to be your lord, you want your fle- follow your flesh, your internal desires, then don't become a Christian. But if Christ is your lord, then it's about what pleases him and honors him. And that, that's what I try to encourage my folks. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor, and um, when I'm preaching, I, I try to encourage them to look, look to Christ. Don't look in the mirror. Don't focus on yourself. Look to Him. Worship Him. Everything flows out of worshiping God. But, I mean, if you listen to a revoiced talk, the, these people are obsessed with how they feel. They are obsessed with themselves. Mm, narcissism. Mm, that's interesting. That's a good point. Yeah, uh, I think. Oh, go, go ahead, ahead Ben. No, no, I've got a, I've got sort of a, a redirect queued up here. Okay. So carry on. Yeah, I, I think, and we talked about it a little bit already. In large part, that obsession with yourself is a, a result of 
it, it's it really that is really part of the bondage to sin. You you are going to be constantly obsessed with yourself and with trying to justify yourself if you don't have a God who will justify you. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the God who offers freedom from sin to you, you're going to be constantly obsessed with trying to um, absolve yourself of that sin, whether by trying to convince yourself that it's actually right and good or by trying to um, portray yourself as a victim. Uh, just so many different ways of doing this. And I think about it in the context of like the the COVID masking thing. I think the reason so many people got so religious about that is because they they had this inner weight of guilt and they didn't have any way to assuage that guilt. And so they made, they tried to make themselves more pure by being so obedient to the mask mandates and, and, you know, pointing out others who wouldn't obey it as being, you know, the sinners of the culture and it's because they had this level of guilt that they couldn't be free from because they didn't have the gospel. Here, here. When we do our what's the way forward section, I've got some more thoughts on that. Uh, that's well said. Uh, so, Jared, I've known over the years that one of the questions that immediately comes up when you start talking about your work is Jesus was tempted. Um, so are you saying that temptation itself is sin? Uh, for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to tell listeners, this is a reason you ought to go buy the book. So chapter six deals with this, and you, you need the book not just to know the correct response, but to to be quick to like give it out to people, point people to it, to, to let them read it for themselves. There is a part of the book, though, I'd like for you to give a bit away for free, Jared, if you're willing. Um We've been doing some of this already, and I've been doing it with a caustic tone. But some of the funniest stuff in your book is where you talk about the approach of sublimation and how it applies with other sins, and what you know what what that approach would look like in the local church. And it's a it's kind of a you know it's a strange section of the book in the sense that like you have to think about some some weird and and pretty vomit inducing sins, but the way you get people to think about applying the revoice approach is quite humorous. So would you take a couple of those and kind of walk us through uh, what it would look like if you tried to sublimate along revoices lines, things like, uh, I don't even know if I'm going to say this right, but like frauderism? Yeah, so um, sublimation is basically a Roman Catholic belief that you can take... um, take an evil desire and turn it towards something good or take a desire that is um, contrary to God and you can order it in a way that honors God. Um, And so what Wesley Hill and Nate Collins, they're both big proponents of sublimation. They believe you can separate your same-sex attraction from your same-sex sexual attraction. So your same-sex sexual attraction is sin because you're desiring sexual morality, but your same-sex attraction is not sin. It's not inherently sinful. And so they they think that they can take their desire for same-sex intimacy and make it holy. They'll say the Holy Spirit makes it holy. And so that's why Revoice is arguing for um, same-sex friendships, covenant friendships, Lifelong monogamous friendships. Lifelong monogamous 
where they live in households together. You even had a PCA youth pastor arguing that um, him and a dude were in a a, uh, household and that when he got married or the other dude got married, that they would all be a household together still? I think the other dude actually did end up getting married. We talked about this not long ago, Jeff. Yep, I think that's right. One of them, the other guy got married, and this dude is because he's gay. And clearly this is a stand-in for gay mirage. Uh, He's jealous. I bet he is. Like, somebody's... I, I can't even wrap my head around the depravity that, like, the... It's uh, the argument for this whole thing is almost purely rhetoric. I mean, it's almost a reframing of. I really think that, you know, historians will look back and say, um, you know, public school um, lessons in rhetoric failed the evangelical church on this issue. The, The masters of rhetoric basically turned our anthropology and theology upside down um but uh what was the what was the question again i lost my train of thought man <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. frauderism or do it with uh do it with a foot fetish you know so i just i get kick out of every time you do this so let's say you're in a church and um you know you a, a deacon comes to you and says hey pastor you know your sermon on um you know on sexual morality really convicted me i I battle a a foot fetish i got to be around feet i got a thing for feet um i've tried to sublimate it by going and um you know i'm a part-time employee at the shoe store so i serve people (laughs) by taking their shoes off rubbing their feet putting on (laughs) shoes for them but uh, but I was wondering how I might use these, you know, this desire. How could I turn it to something holy with the church? And so the the pastor says, well, you got to reject the sexual aspects of it, but the non-sexual, you know, your desire for foot intimacy, um, is not sinful. And I think you could be over a foot washing at church. We'll put you over <laughs> a foot washing to where you can turn your desire for foot intimacy and maybe you can teach the church how to truly serve one another because most of us hate touching each other's feet but you like it like you could show us what it means to um, truly serve our brothers and sisters by enjoying washing each other's feet this is the kind of junk that that wesley hill and nate collins they've literally argued that the people who have same-sex desires, that they can show the church how to be truly friends. Like, we don't know how to be it, and, and Wesley Hill can show us better. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of all of the, the old sermons I heard in the, the IFB church I grew up in about taking an alcoholic and telling him he should become a bartender or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So, uh, so nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, that one is such a funny example of this, but I think uh, you or your editor one were very wise in that section of your book. And again, listener, you need to go get the book. This stuff is uh, good to have on hand. You were wise to try the sublimation approach as a hypothetical 
with pedophilia at the very end. Because that's where we still have a cultural taboo. Mm-hmm. And when you apply that, that kind of revoice thinking to pedophilia, you end up telling, you know, the, the person using revoice's logic is going to tell them to work in children's ministry, um, mm-hmm. which everyone immediately will still, thank God, still have enough of a moral conscience left to go. That is incredibly terrible counsel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, literally with every other sin, the church is still saying, hey, don't do that. Like a guy who's attracted to a coworker, we're not going to say go befriend her. You know, we're if he's married, we're not going to say you need to go befriend your coworker and seek opposite sex intimacy, non-sexual with her. Like, no, we would say if you do that, that's adultery too. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, unless what? you're Amy Bird. Unless you're <laughs> what? Oh, <laughs> Amy Bird. She wrote that book. Why can't we be friends? Oh my gosh! And then Basically, are, are arguing for this sort of thing in the relations between men and women that they should have Jen, close, yeah, Jen, intimate, non non sexual relationships. Jen Wilkins has picked it up in much more uh, subtle. You know, she's not publishing a book on it, but Jen Wilkins doing the same thing now. I had a professor. That was one of the things I disagreed with in seminary. I had a professor in my PhD program. In a course I took with him, he argued, he told all of us, I mean, there are probably 20 pastors in that room, he told us that it wasn't, you know, he was talking about his wife going out to eat with their pastor because she was on staff, and they go out by themselves, just them two, um, they're real good friends. Like he, he was basically oh, arguing that there's nothing wrong with that, and I was just thinking in my head, man. And then it was, what was funny is like a year later, the Me Too movement hit. And I, I wonder if he would still argue that today. Surely he has awakened to how ludicrous that is, like, and how awful. Like, that was before David Seals and all that happened. That was before, um, you know, we had, like, three or four professors at our various seminaries fail morally in the SBC um, publicly. And that was before all that. Like, I mean, can you imagine, Would you would you say, I guess— Maybe because they're on staff together, that would be okay. But the SBC just a couple years ago said that if a uh, you know if a pastor has a relationship with anyone in the church, that it's abuse. Um, it doesn't matter if uh, it, well, you you said a relationship, a uh, sexual relationship, right? Yeah, yeah, like a yeah. inappropriate relationship that it's automatically abuse. And here you are encouraging him to go like. It's mm-hmm. just unwise for everybody involved. Like, yeah. if I if I took my secretary out to eat with just us two, I, that's just unwise on for people talking about her, for people talking about me, for I mean, it's just unwise. Like, what is wise about it? Yeah, you know, like yeah. I just anyway. The Billy Graham I, rule I, is undefeated. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it is best to follow the Billy Graham rule. We need to emphasize that. It's utter nonsense to say that it will keep um, it will keep certain people from it will keep women from being able to to advance and all this baloney. That's just not true. Look around you. I mean, is there anywhere that women have not made it to? Like, I mean, they're they're the we've got a vice president who's a woman right now. Like, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I and we can argue about the propriety of that very thing too. I mean, it, it just. 
well, we're, we'll be getting off topic if we go here, but in large part, a lot of these problems can be solved by women not putting themselves in these situations where they need to be, you know, working with all men in an office together, mm-hmm. but rather mm-hmm. just being at home with their husband. Or feeling a burden, you know, as a man to, to help a woman shatter some glass ceiling, you know. Yeah. The, right. the glass ceiling may be there for a good reason. Yeah. Don't take the fence down if you don't know why they put it up, right? Yeah. Um, to circle back to the to the idea of kind of treating any other sin the way we do sodomy on the on the section where you play this out with pedophilia, there's a great little short paragraph. Um, you know, you play it out; it's inescapable. Using Revoice's logic would put this person in a children's ministry, and you say the problem with that approach is that the man is not seeking to love and minister to children; rather, he has an unnatural desire toward children. And he's using them to partly satisfy his lust of the flesh. He does not love children more because of his pedophilic desires. He hates them. And that's great. And turn that to the spiritual friendship guys. You don't love your brother more because you want to sodomize them. The truth of the matter is you hate them. And you want to draw them into your own uh, wickedness and and self-destructive rebellion against your creator. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's the it's the exact opposite. I mean, so Wesley Hill um, shared at ETS near the time that Obergefell, I can't say it right. Obergefell passed, same-sex marriage passed, and he talked about weeping, seeing, uh, seeing two gay people hugging. Because they finally ex- were able to experience love or something, that that stuff should have got him canceled. Like that's perverted. Yeah, it's perverted. Yeah. There's no way. It's like the Acts twenty nine pastor that, you know, that video that's circulating online right now. That I shared it, and I think y'all shared it too. He he talks about how they have good love in the LGBT community, and I'm like, mm-hmm. why do you, why would they want to become Christians if they've got good love where they're at? Like. These guys are never. I was showing my kids that video on the way to school this morning, and I was like, "Look, this is, this is, this is basically how the devil works. You've got truth mixed with error." And I said, "This guy's never going to reach someone who's having these same-sex desires." And by reach, I mean someone who's willing to turn from them for the rest of their lives and turn to Christ. Yeah, but yeah. there's nothing to turn from in that system. I mean, it's just, they're teaching unrepentance is essentially. Mm. So I, what I would like, so any listener, if you're looking at doing a PhD, I would encourage you to do what I did, which was on concupiscence, but you do it on repentance. Mm. You, you go back exegetically, look at what repentance is, and you go in the Reformed tradition all the way back to Augustine and look at what how they defined repentance. And I think that you know, there could be another dissertation written on basically the same topic against um, gay Christianity uh, from the perspective of what is repentance, that that they're teaching unrepentance and calling it repentance. Yeah. I don't know how many of our listeners are PhD uh, <laughs> pursuers. <laughs> well, lots, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have a certain caliber of listener. I don't, uh, I'm the best that. caliber. 
I think all the SBC presidents, like the of our entities, are listening to this podcast. I believe that's probably true. That's actually something I wanted to bring up. We we talk about this in the context of these guys who are kind of they're on a trajectory, and you can see the trajectory they're on. One of the things that I've been so fascinated by since I've followed you, Jared, on this stuff is the reaction you get from the um, purportedly conservative evangelicals mm-hmm. in certain positions. Um, and, you know, I, you didn't win a whole lot of friends by, by writing this book or discussing these topics. And I've been fascinated by how many of the people who are, you know, we, we consider them solid on the right, on the right side, and they just totally swing and a miss when it comes to this issue. Um, like I've seen your interactions with Doug Wilson, with um, even Gagnon, I think was kind of wishy-washy on this. Um, guys who are have been Kevin pretty solid is super Kevin screwed DeYoung. up on this. Yeah, um, guys who are like generally we consider them pretty solid, but on this issue they just totally miss it, and that's been very eye-opening to me. Yeah, it's it's sad, man. Um... I can't. I don't understand what makes Doug Wilson tick. I, I think that I think he's a man of conviction, and so whatever he believes that the scriptures teach, he's going to go with it. So I I don't understand. He's he's semi semi Pelagian, is what I believe on the on this subject because he says that same sex attraction is well, no, he he says that original sin is morally culpable sin, same sex attraction is not a sin unless you agree with it. And so he he's he's saying that emotion of original sin is not sin, which the Westminster Confession says it is. He claims to affirm it. He does not affirm the Westminster Confession um, on the doctrine of sin. Now, Gagnon is straight semi-Pelagian. I mean, he, he is uh, full-blown. Is he aware of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe so. He he is full blown, you know. He he argues that. I mean, I don't think he would say original sin is culpable. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I think you need to. So, so Ben, when you get done with this conversation, look at my book on Gagnon and just read some of his quotes, and they'll really surprise you. Yeah. <laughs> What have been the most surprising reactions you've gotten in doing this work to you? Primarily the people who will not support me um, publicly. They will not associate with me publicly. And these are guys who would say they agree with you in private and then in public won't? Yeah. Yeah, they'll they'll agree with me in private, act like they are, um, you know, friendly, encouraging, but you know the the love of money is the the root of all evil. Um, that that's largely what keeps people in check in our institutions and in the SBC and other seminaries. And yeah, um, you know they. And it, what's funny is how cheap, um, how cheap people are bought for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, seventy grand, sixty grand is enough for you to basically lose reward in heaven. Um, because you're not willing to stand for truth, you know, that, uh, that, that's what surprises me. And, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm doing my best to labor for standing before Jesus one day and not losing reward because I was 
scared or somebody might fire me or I might lose a little money for my family on this issue or I'm trying to to help people who have these desires to leave them and to find victory in Christ. And uh, I want them to get married to an opposite-sex Christian and have lots of babies and enjoy their grandkids. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you've got a bunch of people arguing the opposite of that. Like, Revoice is literally, they're praising rejecting heterosexual marriage. I mean, biblical yeah. marriage. That, well, and that's not trying... far from Matthew Lee Anderson. Matthew Lee Anderson's all about, oh, singleness is great. And really what he's saying is barrenness is great. Yeah, and they, they try to point to Jesus as single, which is baloney. The Bible doesn't say he's single. He's got a bride, right. and uh, he gave his and life for it's a fruitful for... marriage. Yeah, even, I mean, the marriage is entirely built on Jesus, like Ephesians 5. You yeah. know, like, I don't know how you argue for singleness by pointing to Jesus. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who's, I mean, he we're married eternally. Like, these Revoice guys were arguing for singleness and talking about, well, in eternity we'll be single. No, you're married to Jesus. Like, you, you're not even single in eternity. Like, it's just, it's just so much unbiblical baloney. But that, that's that been the biggest surprise. And then it's also been surprising at how, you know, people... <laughs> Something I've battled in my ministry is just uh, over, uh, this is my 23rd year, and I've battled folks, folk, folks think you're mean, or folks think you're, you know, you're not as loving, or it's just people who don't know you, it's because of social media, um, but uh, people don't want you to be direct on their sins, or they don't, like, I'm just not worried about PR, Public relations. Yeah. Um, I'm worried about being biblically faithful, and I'm not going to be apologetic or soften what the Bible says on any issue. I don't care if how many people are participating in it. I don't care if the world praises it. I, I just don't care. The way that you get folks to repent is by slaying them with the law and then them running to Jesus to be healed. And they will not run to Jesus until they are slayed. I did not run to Jesus until I was slayed. Um, the law slayed me. I was, I was broken by the law. You know, I was broke. You know, because of my sin, it, it was my fault. And Jesus was the only remedy. And and so I ran to Him, and He has healed me, and He's continuing to heal me. And I want people to enjoy that reality, but I, I, you can't do that by softening. Why should they leave behind, you know, homosexual desire and run to Jesus if being gay is good, which is the summary of what Wesley Hill teaches and Matthew Lee Anderson and Revoice and Nate Collins. And, uh, you know, Doug Wilson teaches that it's neutral um, which is, at least he's not saying it's good. Um, but I mean, Doug Wilson, literally on his website right now, you can go and read an article where he says that a desire for gay porn is not sin, is not a sin unless you agree with it, like within one second, like if you reject yeah. it. Yeah. Which, how crazy is that? Like, will, will somebody grab him by the coat and be like, do you really believe this? Yeah. I mean, I just, I don't understand. I don't understand why 
why people are arguing some of these things. And it's not just him, it's David Prince. David Prince, thankfully, is no longer a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, but he argued the same thing, and it was up on his website, still up on his website, has been up on his website for nine years that that was up on his website before he was no longer a professor at Southern Seminary. Um, you had Karen Swallow Pryor, who endorsed Revoice, and never renounced or rescinded her endorsement. But yet, anybody who said anything about it, Danny Aiken would say, well, you know, she's no longer associated with him, and he'd move on. And I'm like, you know, you, you haven't even renounced the... Like, if she was part of the KKK, you would be making her renounce and rescind, or you probably right. would fire her. Like, right. But she's part of the gay mafia, and it's okay. The uh, lavender uh, evangelical mafia. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Like, but but um, but anyway, it's just there's double standards all around. And it's all it's not based on scripture. It's not based on the Bible. It's all based on worldly standards. And essentially, it's the love of money. It's the love of money. The the these uh, entity heads have to think of donors, and um, they've got to think of PR because of donors because of money and student enrollment and all that stuff. But I, I really think it revolves around money because it if you yeah. look at SE, SEBTS, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, their enrollment is basically cut in half what it was, you know, before COVID. And it's real low. And so I don't think that it has helped their enrollment, this KSP baloney. Um but uh and it, you also see it with Patrick Schreiner. Um, Patrick Shiner at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. You know, he came from Western Seminary arguing that same-sex attraction is not sin. Dad is a big deal. It should be a big deal, but it's not. I'm saying his dad is a big deal. Is is his dad Tom Shiner? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, his dad is probably one of our best scholars in the SBC. Um, His Romans commentary is incredible. Uh, But his son uh, is a midwit, and he's a... He's chasing cultural fashions, but he gets an SPC paycheck through one of our seminaries. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, Shriner, Shriner is sharp on New Testament, but he is, he has got a glaring hole on this issue. And I don't know why, but I, I think you hit it on the head, Jeff. There is some sort of appeal to, it's got to be an appeal to liberalism, academia, something. It, it's, it really, it's got to be demonic. Like, yeah. Yeah. How, how did Wesley Hill come and turn literally everybody upside down with the sob story, largely? Like, how did that happen? I mean, I, I don't understand how it happened besides some sort of evil deception involved with it. Like, he, he literally, so Wesley Hill in the past six months has went on an interview. So now, Wesley is part of the Episcopalian denomination, and he is a priest there. Oh, and, he, and they're fully gay affirming, but he's not. And he, right. pastors, he pastors a church, or priests a church, or whatever they call it. Um, Perverts and, a church is what you would call yeah. it. Well, he, he did an interview arguing against same-sex marriage, but he referred to... Those other priests who affirm same-sex marriage as his brothers in Christ, like it's not even a, you know, affirming gay marriage is not a, a position of disfellowship for him at all anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm reminded that Barack Obama ran against uh, 
uh, uh, homosexual marriage his first term. I mean, these things are uh, a reproducible pattern. And yeah. uh, you can just see it if you can. That's why I called Shriner a midwit. I don't think Shriner's demonic, but I think he, you know, for whatever he, whatever he brings to the table that's not his dad's name to New Testament scholarship, if you can't see after being confronted with your rhetoric and where it goes, I'm sorry, brother. You just you're not qualified for Christian leadership in any sense. You you know I've said this before on here, but you shouldn't even be ordering pizzas for the fellowship meal. Yeah, it reminds me of the quote we've used in the past. Um, the uh, the the evangelical is the one who will tell the liberal, "I'll call you a Christian if you call mm-hmm. me a scholar." Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I, I think that's a, a, in large part what's happening here is we want the prestige, we want the money, we want the the platform that these guys can offer us, and so we're willing to sell out our Lord for it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, they're willing to sell out the Lord. They're willing to sell out the church. They're willing to harm all these Christians that are battling inner uh, same sex desire. I mean, they they tell them that they they can't change, they won't change statistically, blah, 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 blah. Like, they, you know, Greg Johnson comes and quotes statistics, and we're all supposed to say, oh, you can't change if you have these desires. It's just who you are for the rest of your life. And, you know, Tim Keller endorsed that book, Still Time to Care, mm-hmm. where he, he basically uses statistics to say that once you're gay, you're always gay for men, and um, which is baloney. You, you take a subset of people and you can prove anything statistically you just ignore the ones that disagree with your goal you know that's why he calls it still time to care rather than um instead of arguing for changing someone you know which christians should argue for caring for someone that's the whole theme of that book you know you, you don't you don't try to change a christian who has homosexual desires you try to care for them yeah, and um, you don't. And so, care not, for not only not, not only do we not know what sin is, and not know what repentance is, we don't know what loving is either, because we hate these people and tell them that it's love. Absolutely. Well, and, and listen to guys to the legacy of evangelical pragmatism. I mean, we can't stay on here all day talking about this, but you mentioned it earlier in the episode. Going to people and compiling statistics and developing theology from that—that's how Rick Warren catechized the church to. Yeah. Uh, build a local congregation. Ed Stetzer's picked that up. He helps drive Acts 29 off a cliff with it, the SVC off a cliff with it. Anytime we chase numbers, evangelicals are led almost immediately into the most wicked of compromises. Yeah, I mean, it goes back. like when you. So when you look at homosexuality in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul does not say that these people were born this way. He says that they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. He says Ooh. that they exchange the natural use of the woman for unnatural use. So there is a exchange that takes place, not a, not not being born a specific way. Like again, you know, the, these guys saying that I'll always be this way is just not true according to Scripture. It's not true according to God's word. And that, that's one reason why these guys, they, they try to... So Revoice will try to say that same-sex attraction is original sin, but it is not. If it was original sin, you would be sexually attracted to everyone. 
right? You would be, if, if same-sex attraction is ontologically your flesh, you would be sexually attracted to every single same-sex person. But it's not. It's emotion of original sin, which means it has particular times when it rears its head, right? When it, when it comes forth. And you're not sexually attracted to everybody, but only particular motions of original sin. And so you are not gay. No one is gay. There are males and females, and your sexuality is tied to who God designed you to be. Sexuality is not something that can be separated from your sex as male or female. Right? I mean, you, they, you, it's not like the 70s and 80s have argued, and the church has adopted this, that your sexuality is something that is distinct from your sex. And uh, biblically, that is not the case. You know, sexuality is defined in Genesis chapter 2, um, verses 18 through 25, where God associates sexuality with Adam and Eve. They mm. were literally made for one another. Their bodies are designed to fit together in the sex act within marriage. And that is how your body is designed. Your body, so these desires that you have, are telling you to find an opposite sex spouse. But because of sin, you think that you desire to find the same sex spouse. But that is not biblically. Look at your body. Look or at how you God want to make that you. trade, right? Yeah, That's the language of Romans. Yeah. You want to trade that. Yeah. Yes. You want to trade God's design for your design or for the devil's design. we got to call it what it is so that you can forsake it and reject it and agree with God's good design of you and the opposite sex. What I try to encourage people is, you know, there's this all— because in, in LGBT stuff, it's all about sexual desire. It's all about—that's the prerequisite for everything in their lives, it seems. Like, you literally are building— a community around sexual desire. And um, the Bible does not say that sexual desire is inherent as far as a prerequisite for marriage. Um, and so they need to follow God's design for marriage and cultivate that desire, right? Not, I'm not saying lust before marriage, but I'm saying seeing that I am willing to covenant with this opposite-sex person and cut a sexual covenant with him or her, according to Scripture. I mean, that they need to pursue that goal rather than saying what Wesley Hill says, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm gay, so I'm not attracted to women, so I can't get married. No, Wesley, you're a man. You have the parts. God designed you to get married. Pursue an opposite-sex Christian for marriage for the purpose of cutting a sexual covenant and get married and have a bunch of babies. And don't tell her how gay you are. Tell her you think she's gorgeous and yes. you're thankful to be with her and that you want to have children with her and quit wallowing in your wickedness. Yes, absolutely, 100%. And all yeah. that you just said is loving. He's going to wake up one day and, and realize that he has forsaken God's good gift of children. And grandchildren, like, man, I, I just, I feel, I feel for these guys because they, they are forsaking a wonderful gift because they're rejecting God's design of their bodies, the goodness of marriage and all that God has given us, man. And um, that's what I want to help. And 
I want to help uh, folks who are battling this. You know, I've counseled folks in my church and encouraged them to re- reject these inward desires and pursue opposite-sex marriage. And, you know, the, you know, secular culture and movies, they, they all act like, well, that's not going to end well. The person's always going to be gay, not blah, 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 all this baloney. Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. Repentant. Christians, I mean, but you men are married. Y'all know that y'all are repenting of desires that are contrary to God, that spring up within your heart. Um, all of us are. And repentant men make the best husbands and fathers. And so we need to tell these folks who have these same-sex desires or are having these same-sex desires to repent of them, turn from them, embrace God's good, good design, pursue your wife, Covenant before God to be bound to her for the rest of your life and and lead her and guide her and love her until death do you part. Like, I mean, anyway, I know y'all know all this. I'm just. <laughs> no, this is I, good. No, that's great. Yeah. What would you how would you counsel a young man who's, say, single and maybe maybe he's come out of the revoice movement, but he's had these desires and and hates them in himself and wants to cultivate the right kind of desire towards a godly young lady. How does he cultivate that? Yeah, I would tell him to find the godliest, um, the godliest lady, single lady that he can find and pursue her for marriage. That's what I'd tell him. So there, there's got to be this feeling of, um, you know, this, you're, you're not going to get desires that are contrary to God to stop by just telling them to stop willpower, all Mm -hmm. this stuff. But you have to have a greater affection that will expel the evil. The expulsion. Yep, the expulsion. of uh, That's the Puritans, right? You have to have a new desire, expel the old one. And I'll jump in real quick. I've actually counseled a young man in this uh, scenario. Um, Our work was a couple things. One, it was to, who who do you think represents virtuous manhood? Um, Try to model your life on them. You're kind of watching them until the steps become natural for you. And then also uh, pursue a young lady. And I have held babies, multiple babies in my arms from uh, this union that was created that uh, are growing up in a God-honoring family. Where You know, they have difficulties the way every marriage does. But this is a healthy Christian household where children are being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Where not that long ago, the dad was very interested in being catcalled by men. Amen, man. That's... That is that that stuff like that, like that should be the model, like what yeah. we tell young men and what we tell young women as far as cultivating. It is you're trying you're working on cultivating according to God's design. And if you're a Christian, you know, a woman who has who is zealous for good works under the lordship of Christ is beautiful. I mean, it is a. uh you know, Paul emphasizes that when he talks about the adorning of a, of a woman concerning her good works. And, you know, there can be a, an attraction that would be a cultivated um, concerning godliness, particular feminine godliness, mm-hmm. um, that could be the beginnings of cultivating an opposite sex attraction towards a Christian woman. Yeah, I think one of the things that makes this so difficult today is that the counterfeit is so readily available that Mm -hmm. a lot of young men don't even know how to appreciate actual beauty. 
And it, mm-hmm. it, partially because of the, you know, the disgusting habits of like porn or things like that, that are calling them away from recognizing true beauty, but also just because they're like an unfamiliarity with scripture. Get in the word of God. What does God tell you is beautiful? And and train yourself to love what God says is beautiful I and mean, desirable. So a book I would recommend is by Gavin Peacock. It's actually three books, Gavin Peacock and Owen Strand. And it's three little books by Christian Focus. Um, give me a second. Let me grab them. So there's three little books, and they're called Lust is one of them, Transgenderism is one, and Homosexuality is the other. And I would recommend these, these three books on this because one in particular, the transgenderism, um, uh, Peacock talks about a man, I believe in his church, who basically had lived, you know, he had raised his family in church, taught Sunday school, and he was flirting with dressing like a woman on the side, wouldn't tell anybody. Long story short, he ended up leaving his family, going full transition, um, got, you know, got uh, dismembered. I don't know how else to say it. Cut, castrated. Made a and, eunuch. Yeah, made a eunuch and went and ha- took the hormones, did that for like a decade. And then he finally, you know, got basically got to the lowest point, which seems to be about how everybody does who transitions. Yeah. Well, he he knew where to go to because of his previous life, and he repented, rejected those desires, and he said when he was coming out of that, you know, that lifestyle, he was reading the Bible an hour a day, and he had to basically renew his mind with Scripture, mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. was no longer thinking contrary to God and believing contrary to God. But he was thinking in lockstep with God, in lockstep with God's design. And um, I believe this man, according to Peacock, every Christmas, because his family, he still lost his family. Um, I believe he spends uh, Christmas with the Peacock family. And uh, so he has, you know, he has lived the lived life of a man ever since. And um, But I, I thought that was very interesting, how purifying the Word of God is to someone who yeah. believes it. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that is evidence of, and it's why it's something like Revoice is tragic and heinous, is because there are some consequences of sin that you can't take back. Yeah. And so telling these people, hey, this is good, this is right, is so evil because they're going to be dealing with the consequences of that sin that you've told them to live in and celebrate for the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's the stakes, man. That's the stakes. That's why it ticks me. Can I just just as a segue? It ticks me off. I know we're in America and we're free, but it ticks me <laughs> off when when conservatives say I'm against children transitioning, as if adults should be permitted to transition. Yeah. Oh, that's like, a great point, man. It fires me up. Like if you're a Christian and you love your neighbor. I mean, that's something, again, with Christian nationalism. Like, do you, do you really w- want to tell me you love your neighbor and you want to you want transitioning to be legal for your 18-year-old neighbor? Mm-hmm. Right. Come on. Anyway. Well, I mean, that's a great point. We could do more, but we've, we've gone pretty long on this. Uh, we've done a bunch of how we tend to finish the episode out. So I'm going to go. I'll go Jared, Ben, and I'll finish up. 
Uh, anything you want to give listeners as a way to pursue faithfulness going forward uh, from the content we've talked about here today? Did you say me first? Yeah. So the number one thing, the people who battle with these desires, you have to quit talking about yourself. You have to quit talking about yourself, and you have to love God and build your life around worshiping Him. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the Christian life from, I mean, throughout the Scriptures is built around worshiping Yahweh by the Spirit through the Son to the Father. And that's what you must focus on and live your life for. Your life is about the glory of God. It is not about how you feel. It's about God's glory. If you wanted to live for yourself, you should not have pursued Christ. Like, the way that we get fulfillment as Christians is in how much God is glorified. I mean, Piper was right about this, right? I mean, it's thoroughly biblical. Jonathan Edwards was right about this. Right? We live for God's glory. A Christian is someone who lives for God's glory. A non-Christian is someone who doesn't. And so I, I just want to encourage you in that because there is great freedom in mm-hmm. not living according to how you feel, but living according to the Lordship of Christ. And two, if you do that, if you live for God's glory, you can, you can glorify Him in whatever situation you're in. I mean, in whatever's going on in your life, so it's no longer you know, about your fulfillment, but it's about... Um, God's glory. You know, it's no longer about, you know, well, I, I have to, um, you know, I have to fulfill my same-sex intimacy desires in a non-sexual, like all this empty rhetoric. It's none of that. It's what will glorify God the most, right? What brings Him the most glory? And enjoying Him where He has placed you in whatever vocation, um, or in whatever you're dealing with in life, and using those things for His glory. I mean, so I want to encourage you in that and wor- building your life around worshiping Him. I think that that's the key, but not, not just for those who battle desires that are contrary to God, but I, or, or same-sex desires, or but everyone, all of us, we we must build our lives around worshiping Yahweh. I would encourage you find a local church that preaches the Bible. Um, go and. I mean, go every time the doors are open, you know, use your gifts for God's glory and uh, pursue an opposite sex Christian um, and seek to cultivate based on uh, his or her beauty, beauty according to Scripture. Find the godliest person you can and spend as much time with him as you can. Ben? Yeah, I think I would say, and I'm I'm thinking not, particularly of the people who experience these feelings, but the people who are sitting in the pews who are told every day they need to accept that this is normal, that this is okay, that it's good that people live this way. And I want to reiterate what my my good friend Thabiti has said, keep your gag reflex. It is right to reject these things. It is right to consider them vile and obscene and heinous acts against God. And it's okay, it's in fact good to reject them and to say these desires are evil and I want nothing to do with them. And you're not you you are not hating your neighbor by doing that. You're not hating the same sex attracted person in your church by doing that. You're actually loving them and you're pointing them to Christ and repentance from sin. So don't don't believe that because Wesley Hill or Matthew Lee Anderson or any of these platform Christian tells you that you need to sit 
and listen to what God says is sin. You can listen to what the word of God says. This is sin. It's wrong. Reject it. Amen. Uh, friends, I would say there's personal advice to be uh, ported into your own life, regardless of who you are and what your own appetites are. Pursue God's good design, and your affections and your appetite will eventually catch up. So just do what God says, and eventually, at some point, maybe take a long time, uh, you will be brought into resonance with it. The other thing I would ask is, when you pray, pray that God would be pleased to give evangelicals a deep repentance for our fear of man. Uh, We chase numbers everywhere, and it leads us into uh, gross sin. It leads us into unfaithfulness in our churches. It leads us into unfaithfulness in our homes, unfaithfulness in our denominational activities, unfaithfulness in popular messaging. Pray that God would give us a heart change where we fear God rather than man. That That is the revival, I think, specifically, that uh, evangelicals in our generation most. Yeah, you're, you're never going to regret being faithful to the Lord and rejecting the fear of man at the end of your life. Yeah, that's right. All right, so the book is Lust of the Flesh. It's from Dr. Jared Moore. It will be released early in October 2023, which is just a little bit less than a month from when we're recording right now. Uh, Dr. Moore, thanks for your friendship. I guess I'll start there. Thanks for your work. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for writing this book. And uh, we are confident the Lord's going to use it for the good of His church and the glory of Christ. Amen, fellas. I appreciate y'all. Y'all keep saying what the Bible says and being direct and not sissy-footing around, you know, just, it's fun. It's funny, isn't it? Like, backwards belief. Um, but uh, y'all are y'all are just saying what, I mean, what the Reformers said, you know, <laughs> I mean, just being direct about it. And uh, yeah. I want to encourage you to continue being direct. It's masculine to be direct and clear. Thank you, brother. Where can and people find you? Yeah, where can people find you on social media or a website or what you're writing besides this book if they wanted to do that? I'm, I'm most active on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. And uh, I want to encourage you to find me there and follow me there. Um, I'm also have a, I have a YouTube channel, just Dr. Jared Moore. And then I'm on Facebook as Dr. Jared Moore as well. I've got another book called The Pop Culture Parent. Uh, check that out. It's just about engage, engaging pop culture in a dis- distinctly Christian manner. And I hope to write more books in the future, but we'll see. This one this one was a bear. So uh, I hope it's beneficial to the church. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it will be. It's, it's definitely needed right now. Um, well, thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. I hope, I hope that it was helpful to you and that you'll think deeply and clearly about these issues go read the book. There's a lot of great exegetical work in there that we didn't get to in this podcast. Um, this is Backwoods Belief. I am Bendel Wary, and uh, you can find me on Twitter or Gab at Bendel Wary. You can find Jeff um, at, oh boy, Merely J. Wright on Twitter and at Wright Jeff on, uh, on Gab. Correct. Right.